0: for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, February 25th, 2011. Good gravy, Miss Maybe. Cannot keep up anymore with the heresy hurricane. It's gone beyond a Category 5 onto Category 6 and 7. Unprecedented winds of... False doctrine are swirling around, and yet our Lord is a rock; He isn't blown to and fro. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. And unfortunately, those crazy things are not being said in Mormon pulpits or Jehovah's Witness pulpits or by the Scientologists or the atheists, but these things are being said by Christian pastors. And uh, that's the last place you want to hear craziness being preached, What you want to hear in church, is Christ and Him crucified for our sins. And sound biblical doctrine that points us to Christ, that's who and what it's all about. But unfortunately, uh, people have gotten bored with Jesus, and people have gotten bored with the gospel message, and people have become, well, <sighs> uncertain about whether or not the Bible is actually the Word of God, and so they've decided to strike off on their own, brave souls that they are, to strike off on their own and concoct their own theology, their own religion, and then <sighs> preach it from their Christian church's pulpits. And uh, that's a formula for eternal disaster. So we chronicle that here at Fighting for the Faith and counter it with uh, what God's Word teaches. It's not politically correct. This is not a program for those who are faint of heart or easily offended. Um, no, this is uh, this is rough and tumble, the marketplace of ideas. We name names, we play sound bites. You know exactly who's saying what, and we show you from the scripture where what that person is saying ain't jiving with the word of God. And ultimately, always, 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 when you get these weird doctrines, when you get people preaching their subjective theologies rather than the sound theology of the scriptures, you, what you end up with is. Uh, distractions that point us away from the biblical gospel, point us away from Christ, and lead us off into oblivion. And uh, that's not what Christian pastors are going to do. Leave that nonsense for the cultists. Leave that nonsense for the uh, the people in other religions. That is not uh, behavior becoming of a Christian pastor, one who is a shepherd, an under-shepherd of the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. Okay, today's program. I got, I got way too much to do. Way... <laughs> Oh man. But hey, have have I got a great sermon for you today. Oh man. Um yeah, I'll, I'll I'll talk about the sermon in hour number 2. You don't want to miss this. You just don't want to miss this. Uh it's it's a chapel sermon uh uh preached by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt at Christ College Irvine. Uh that can it's well, not it's not Christ College Irvine. That's that's what it was when I went there. Yeah, they changed the name to Con U. Yeah, so no, it's Concordia University Irvine, California and uh it, it, it recently preached a chapel sermon there and the name of it is Christianity in 5 verses. I, I i literally just finished reviewing the sermon just before i went on the air and i had to compose myself this i oh man i cannot wait for you to hear this uh this is a, this is a sermon that i think you're going to want to hear a few times it's 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 that good and you're thinking oh come on chris it's it's just a sermon yeah i i know and you're probably biased because dr rosenblatt's your mentor yeah i i know Uh, All of that considered, I I really do think that this is one of those sermons, you're going to have a tough time emotionally getting through it. And at the end of it, you're going to be like a little child after hearing the most amazing uh, children's story you've ever heard. And you're going to say, again, I got to hear it again. I want to hear it again. It's that good. So the name of the sermon is uh, Christianity in Five Verses, and I think it's the perfect counterpoint to some of the nonsense that we're going to hear today. And so let's talk about what we're going to talk about in the first hour. And uh, I, 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 I've got to start digging into the pile of email. I'm a little bit, a little bit, I'm like way behind on my email at the moment. <laughs> and I've got to catch up. And uh, I, I'll, I'll, today will be a first installment of uh, some email And I'm going to pick the low-hanging fruit. I'm going to to read one or two emails from Pastor Gervais Nicholas, Edward Charmley. Those of you who have emailed me uh, some decent questions, uh, hang on. I I plan to get to them next week. But, uh, you know, with everything that's happening right now, uh, it's hard. Anyway, I will get to them. Um, So we got that. We've got uh, news from Saddleback. Uh, Stephen Furtick uh, got some media coverage in the Christian Post regarding the lecture that he gave at this year's radicalis uh, over there uh, radicalis conference over there at Saddleback Church put on by Rick Warren and uh, you know sat you know again uh, you know I, I i just don't think that the radicalis conference is really garnering all that much hype and and the reason why is because well unfortunately Rick Warren apparently had a hard time uh, attracting some of the first string bible twisters and unfortunately, he's had to go with the second and third string uh, injured reserve Bible twisters. And uh, Stephen Furtick is is climbing the ranks. I mean, he's uh, eventually going to be a, a premier guy. Um, you know, he'll he'll be up there with the the Joel Osteen's and the like. And uh, and of course, he's just as heretical. <clears throat> but um, anyway, so he's uh, he's uh, his speech was it yesterday or the day before? Is called uh why bother syndrome you know he's so he's tackling the why bother syndrome among pastors we'll take a look at uh, what was written about him in the christian post um and then uh i you know, we got news today that uh, rob bell has a brand new book that'll be coming out on march 25th and the name of it is love wins and uh, from the from all intents and purposes based upon the promo video and what was and what's been written about it by the publisher uh, Rob Bell is going to come out as a universalist, and uh, and so uh, the, the name of the segment is going to be called Love Wins, Rob Bell Puts Hell on Trial. We'll take a look at that. And then I want you to hear some audio from a video segment from Marcus Borg's uh, speech that he delivered at the Big Tent Christianity uh, conference that uh, recently concluded down there in Arizona. And then, like I said, our sermon review today is Pastor uh, and Dr. Rod Rosenblatt. And his sermon entitled "Christianity in Five Verses." So we've we've got a lot of ground to cover today, and uh, and so I think we'll just have to just dive right in. All right, our. Uh i got two emails I'm going to take a look at from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley uh, from across the pond in Great Britain. Uh, Hanley Stoke-on-Trent, he's a pastor of a congregation there. And by the way, uh, I, I'm thinking maybe next week. I, 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 don't hold me to it if it doesn't happen, but uh, I've, I've got it penciled in. I, I will be doing a uh, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley sermon review next week. Uh, but uh, today we, i got two emails that I uh, want to read from Pastor Charmley. The first one is regarding Ed Young Jr. and his boat. Uh, yeah, if you, uh, if you remember, uh, Ed Young, I did a segment uh, not too long ago where I... Audio from a, a tele, you know, a, a Daystar TV sermon delivered by Ed Young Jr., and where it sounded like he had um, a, a preacher's version of ADHD, and it was just weird. Anyway, uh, Pastor Charmley uh, uh, has uh, officially submitted his two cents uh, regarding uh, Ed Young Jr.'s boat, and uh, here's what he said uh, Dear Chris, listening to Ed Young Jr. talk about his boat reminds me of a case. I once heard of a headmaster at a school in England. I heard this from a teacher at the school, so it's well authenticated. Well, okay, we'll, we'll trust your credentials on this, Pastor Charmley. He says it was school prize giving day, the day of honor, the achievements of the uh, to, the day to honor the achievements of the pupils at this school for children with learning difficulties. Uh, the parents were there, the children were there, the teachers were there. Were there all assembled? In the mansion that had been turned into the school, the headmaster came on the stage to give his big speech, and instead of talking about the children and what they had done, or even encouraging them, he talked about his yacht. (laughs) None of the other teachers had one, none of the parents did, and everyone was deeply offended by it. So what was the result? Uh, the teachers mutinied and then made him walk the plank. Figuratively speaking, they forced him out. I think someone should do that with Ed Young Jr. <laughs> you know, that's a good point, Pastor Charley. As we were hearing um, Ed Young Jr. regale us with stories of his fishing excursions and uh, adventures, yeah, I, it, you know, I'm thinking, sure would be nice to, uh, you know, have that kind of life where I could, you know, regularly and frequently. You know, head out into the open seas and enjoy some sport fishing. You know, but apparently, you know, this is a big deal with Ed Young. He gets to do this quite a bit. And uh, the funny thing about that, though, is is that in Christianity in America, that's actually a sign that your pastor is blessed by God. So, and uh, the people in the congregation, rather than mutinying, they 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 they're most, more than likely hearing it and going, "Oh, I can't wait till God blesses me so that I can go fishing like that all the time." <sighs> Anyway, next email from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley reads, uh, this is, by the way, uh, regarding Brian Bloy's sermon. Uh, Here's what he says. Dear Chris, listening to Brian Bloy talking about Satan as the cause of his difficulties, uh, praying with his wife and children helped to crystallize a thought that's been floating around in my head for a while now. Uh, That's this. The danger of externalizing the spiritual conflict. Now, this is a great point. He says, "...by this I mean the idea that spiritual conflict is seen predominantly in terms of conflict with demons rather than conflict with our own sin." The danger is that of uh, hagiography. Hagios is uh, is, the Greek word for saints. Uh so uh, anyway let's uh, read what he has to say about hagiography in the hagiogra- hagiographic uh, tradition of the middle ages the saint's conflict is with demons outside rather than with inward sin you have pro- uh, you have probably seen pictures of the temptation of saint anthony carl truman notes in a recent book quote Much of the conflict in which Anthony engages is physical. He wrestles with demons and fights off their literal physical attacks. It indicates a theology that externalizes the problem that the Christians face. It's not so much sin, it's the the enemy within as the external foe of the demonic that creates the dynamic of the Christian life. And this is from his book, Histories and Fallacies, which was published last year by Crossway Books. It says, I worry when I hear someone applying a hagiographic technique to his own life. What is more, the reason for this is, in the case of Anthony, is the orthodox doctrine of theosis or deification, in which the Christian's goal is to share in the energies of God. Uh, God God-like qualities are ascribed to Anthony to, uh, to make him the ideal man. Now, this is bad enough when it's done with dead people. We all know that Christians have done this with dead heroes of the faith. Martin Luther has been the subject of a, of hagiographic treatments to name one man. So has Calvin or John Wesley, Billy Sunday, and any other Christian hero you might be willing to name. Billy Graham is treated this way in some circles and John Stott in others. Quote, this man is the ideal. Be like him. But what is... Infinitely worse is what we might call the, hagi- the hagiography of self, when the preacher holds himself up as the ideal man. Ah, brilliant point, Pastor Charmley. You know what? We hear this frequently in the sermons that we listen to and review here at Fighting for the Faith. Where the pastor will give some kind of standard by which, you know, people are supposed to be obeying God by, and then turns around and then says, you know, I used to struggle with this, but now that I have do X, Y, or Z, I, I've now come to grips with this, and I'm, you know, and I'm doing this myself, and, and, and you can learn from the way I learned how to do it. Here's the three things that I applied to my life so that I could then, you know, become holy this way, and if you apply these three things to your life after buying my book, you'll, you'll get all the details on this, then you too can... Yeah, yeah. you make a great point, Pastor Charmley. Anyway, he says, uh, Christian leaders in the past, like Luther... When they spoke of themselves, did so in terms of God's lowly instruments, or even as sinners. Uh, One of the best examples of this is the Scots Presbyterian, Alexander White. What I hear in many of the sermons you review is something else. It is men holding themselves up as good examples. Add to that the hagiographic depiction of their struggles as with external uh, rather than internal foes, and we have something very dangerous going on. Uh, while John Wesley taught a doctrine of the entire sanctification, he never claimed to have achieved it. These men are different. They singularly do claim to have achieved it. The saving grace of Wesley is that he never thought that he had, that he had attained it. Athanasius sets Anthony before us as an example. Wesley sets others before us. But the man who sets before us that cont- that contemptible creature himself is to be feared. For Athanasius, it took Anthony to achieve, uh, achieve perfection is a fallacy we can overlook. After all, Athanasius cannot be expected to have known Anthony's heart. But had Athanasius said that Athanasius achieved perfection, we would not call him a saint, but rather call him a demon. And now, I fear I'm sounding far too much like G- G.K. Chesterton, so I had better quit while I'm ahead. <laughs> great emails pastor charmley always insightful good stuff and uh i'm hoping next week to uh, review the sermon that you recently delivered regarding john chapter 9 and the pool of siloam and uh we'll but we'll uh, take a look at that next week depending on how things go all right uh moving along here um i had asked you all uh, a couple of weeks ago that i needed a a uh, intro music. I needed intro music for when I would be talking about Stephen Furtick, and I want to thank you all for your very, various and sundry different um, songs that you recommended. Some of them were quite entertaining. Some of them were very funny, um, and uh, and at the same time, you know, I was looking for something that really just kind of rang true with Stephen Furtick. And I'm proud to announce that. Uh, that several of you uh, had suggested this song as our Stephen Furtick update music, and so and now from now on, when we talk about Stephen Furtick, before we play Stephen Furtick's, uh, we talk about what he's saying or comparing what he's saying to the Word of God, we will play this song. Here we go. You think bibles about you. Don't
1: you Bibles about you. Oh, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I butchered that, but you get what I'm saying, yeah? I bet I bet you think the bibles about you. Yeah, you're so vain. It sounds like the perfect thing to uh, discuss Stephen Furtick, the um 30-year-old, 30-something pastor who has the Justin Bieber haircut. <sighs> and <laughs> and is the author of the book Sun Stand Still yeah because every, he's discovered that that's the uh, prayer that the church has been missing this entire time but anyway he was one of the featured speakers at this year's um well just tepid flat rather boring Uneventful. Um, they only had second and third string injured reserve Bible twisters available for this year's Radicalis Conference out there at Saddleback. But Stephen Furtick, I mean, he one of these days he's going to come up from the second string all the way to the big time. He is going to be the headline guy. I'm, I'm telling you, he's gonna make he's gonna make Rick Warren look like yesterday's news eventually yeah but uh right now uh, rick warren's doing a good job of promoting him so that someday he can be advanced to that level but anyway the uh christian post uh Catherine t fawn of the christian post picked up the uh, saddleback um press release uh regarding uh stephen furtick's speech at the Radicalis conference and uh and well pretty much just reprinted the um press release with just a few minor edits but <laughs> i digress anyway uh Here's uh here here's what the Christian Post wrote. He said author and pastor. <clears throat> hang on a second. That that hurt to say. Whew, man, pa- how is he a pastor again? Yeah, pastors generally care for their sheep rather than beat them. Anyway, author and pastor Stephen Furtick tackled the whole the why bother syndrome that can plague the faith of many pastors during his address Wednesday morning. At the Radicalis Conference, Furtick, who leads Elevation Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, Carolina, spoke from Mark 5 on Jarius, the synagogue leader, who asked Jesus to come to his house and heal his sick daughter. But along the way, a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years, quotes, cuts in line and gets healed by touching Jesus's cloak. Meanwhile, Jarius learns that his daughter has died at home. He said pastors attending the event at Saddleback Church can become inspired by the conference, but they can fall into depression and despair as they compare the size of their ministry and church to the magnitude of what they see at Saddleback. Quote, at the same time you are hearing God's word and faith is growing and rising up inside of you, your situation may be actually deteriorating and may not be improving at all, said Ferdick Pastors could hear a similar voice of doubt to what Jarius heard when he, when he learns that his daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? <laughs> what a supreme misunderstanding of Mark chapter 5. I mean, seriously, Mark chapter five has nothing, absolutely nothing, zero to do. With the size of your church, and I mean, let's, I mean, what is the assumed thing here? You, you got all these, you, you know, only two thousand something. By the way, I, I've been to Saddleback. I've been to Saddleback conferences before. I was the guest of Rick Warren a few years ago at the Purpose Driven Community Conference, and uh, I, I got to tell you, I've been to a Saddleback conference when they've packed the place, and that, and the sanctuary there at Saddleback can hold about six thousand people and if only 2000 people a pastor showed up that sounds like a decline to me i mean that's it just 2000 that's um uh again I, uh, well he, he was only able to get second and third string injured reserve bible twisters to come and speak at the conference but anyway i mean so here you've got pastors there and they're they're at saddleback and they're going Oh, I want to be. I want God to bless my church so that it's big like Saddleback. <laughs> and things are getting worse. My my church is shrieking. <laughs> Why bother the Master anymore? What a complete narcissistic and absolutely ridiculous way to look at things. Pastors are called to be faithful faithful in preaching God's Word. It is a privilege to share God's Word, whether it's with one person or with 5, 10, 15, 20, 100, 500, 1,000. I mean, seriously. Seriously. And by the way, if you think that God's the one that's blessing Saddleback, uh, if that were the case, then Rick Warren uh, you'd be able to go back into his sermons and hear him properly handling God's word, faithfully exegeting the text, and proclaiming Christ and him crucified for our sins, even to the, uh, the sinners that call themselves Christians at Saddleback. And, you know, and and you know instead, all you hear is Rick Warren twisting God's word, tickling ears, mangling the text, uh, focusing in on me, 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 me. So Rick Warren, I mean, the reason why his church is growing has nothing to do with the blessings of God. It has everything to do with the fact that he's telling pagans what they want to hear. And pagans will flock to hear that. And because, you know, what he's basically doing is creating the false illusion that God and Christianity is all about them having their felt needs met. And you know, so yeah, this—I mean, t- uh, man, talk about blindness. <sighs> it, it, and by the way, the story of Jarius's daughter there in Mark chapter five—it ain't about your church. I mean, how is it that these guys are able to take a passage that's about Jesus, that's about Christ, and turn it into something about themselves? I mean, seriously. I mean, it goes back to that song that I was playing. I mean, you know, it. it, it,
1: it
0: With that, I think I'm gonna go to a break. That's right. You bet. You think the Bible's about you? They're so vain. I'm gonna rock out. Do the white man overbite. Do the Muppet dance right here in my seat. Here. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. Oh wait. <laughs> Gotta sing.
2: You're so vain. I bet you think the Bible's about you. You're so
1: vain. I bet you think the Bible's about you. Don't you? Don't you? When I went up to Saratoga, and your
0: horse. You know how to get a hold of me. You know my email address. I'm gonna rock out for a little while here.
1: (laughs)
4: <laughs>
5: Python's Flying Circus Church Hello, I wish to register
2: a complaint Uh, we're closing for lunch
5: Never mind that, my lad I wish to complain about the sermon that I purchased a day ago from this very boutique
2: Uh, yes, uh, what's wrong with it?
5: Tell you what's wrong with it, my lad It's a dead sermon, that's what's wrong with it
2: No, not possible, you just preached it wrong Look,
5: matey I know a dead sermon when I preach one, and I know that the sermon I preached yesterday was certainly dead. Jesus Christ wasn't mentioned once, not even in the footnotes.
2: No, no, you just weren't charismatic enough. Remarkable sermon. Beautiful imagery. The imagery, don't enter into it.
5: It's stone dead. No, 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 no. You're just not open-minded enough. All right, then. If it's not dead, then I shall be able to preach the gospel. I read a portion of it. And then the camp counselor told all of the woodland creatures to become more righteous, So that they too could get to the place called heaven. You you see what I mean? This is ridiculous. There. I found the gospel in the sermon. No, you didn't. That was you just writing the word gospel on the cover of the room temperature sermon. Well, I never. Yes, you did. I, I never, never did anything. This entire sermon fails to preach anything that's worth anything to anyone. Now, that's what I call a dead sermon. No, no, no. You haven't looked deep enough into yourself. You must be joking. Well, you're just being divisive, and you refuse to accept the message that's being presented. Um, Now, look. Now, look, mate. I've definitely had enough of this. That sermon is definitely rotten. And when I purchased it not but a day ago, you assured me that it was Christ-centered, cross-focused, and filled to bursting with the gospel. Well, if you would just read
2: the title.
5: Read the title? What kind of title is this anyway? Super Spiritual Happy Fun Friends Adventure Camp Pack. Mate, listen, people wouldn't be chasing me to hear this rubbish if I was firing midgets out of cannons. It's bleeding demise.
2: You didn't buy the midget cannon expansion pack?
5: The sermon has passed on. The sermon is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to me and its maker. It's a stiff, bereft of life, it burns in hell. If you hadn't put it in the wrong package sleeve, I would be using it for fire starter. The thought processes that brought it about are now history. It's off the twig. It's kicked the bucket. The bleeding choir invisible wouldn't listen to this sham. This is an ex-sermon. Uh,
2: well, well I'd I better replace it then. Let's see. here. Uh, Christ-centered, uh, gospel, Jesus. Uh, uh. Well, sorry, squire. I've had a look around in the back of the shop and, uh, well... We're right out of well, whatever it is that you're
5: looking for. I see. I see. I get the picture. I, I got a sermon here from Rick Warren. Does it contain Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice? Well, no, not really. Well, that's hardly a replacement, is it?
2: Look, if, if, if you're really dead set on the whole Jesus thing, I suggest that you look up Pirate Christian Radio. All they do is talk about Jesus 24 7. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus.
5: Pirate Christian Radio? Very well, I'll give them a try.
0: We're back. Warning, the stories in the Bible are not about you. They're not about your life, the things you're going to achieve, or anything like that. They're about what Jesus has done for you. Stop reading yourself into the text. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Uh, one says donate, the other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, uh, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to post office box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code Four six zero three eight, and I want to thank you all ahead of time. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your support. And some of you, it's not even ahead of time; it's it's after the fact. Thank you all for your support for fighting for the faith and making it possible for us to keep bringing this important radio outreach to you. All right, moving along here, um, it's uh, time for a Rob Bell update, which requires us to play some uh, some music that I've selected for discussing Rob Bell. It must be Music Friday here at Fighting for the Faith. Rob Bell and his champagne supernova in the sky. Yeah, that's right. He, Rob Bell has a brand new book coming out, and the name of it is – well, it's not actually a theological statement. It's basically a, a, a philosophical slogan uh, that he's famous for for quite a while. This is not a new uh, thing that's to be associated with Rob Bell. But the name of his forthcoming book, and it's coming out on March 25th, is entitled – Love wins. That's right. Love wins. Oh, isn't that, that just sounds so great. And so, um, the, the name, the subtitle is, um, the, a book about heaven, hell, and the fate of every person who ever lived. Oh, wow. Wow. It sounds like Rob Bell's going to tell us about the afterlife. Well, here's the product description that, uh, was put out by Harper Collins. Uh, um, Harper is the uh, the publishing company that's going to be putting out this book. And it says, fans flock to his Facebook page. His NUMA videos have been viewed by millions. And his Sunday sermons are attended by 10,000 parishioners with a downloadable podcast reaching 50,000 or more. An electrifying, unconventional pastor whom Time Magazine calls, quote, a singular rock star in the church world. Rob Bell is the most vibrant central religious leader of the millennial generation. Now in love winds, heaven, hell, and the fate of every person who ever lived, Bell addresses one of the most controversial issues of faith, the afterlife, arguing that a loving God would never sentence human souls to eternal suffering. With searing insight, Bell puts hell on trial and his message is decidedly optimistic. Eternal life doesn't start when we die. It starts right now and ultimately according to bell love wins that's right according to the publisher in this book <clears throat> rob bell is going to argue that a loving god would never sentence human souls to eternal suffering and uh, it just so happens that i have i have uh, the first promo video that has been released by uh, rob bell to you know, you know to let everybody know about his brand new book here here, here here's rob bell
6: several years ago we had an art show at our church and people brought in all kinds of sculptures and paintings and we put them on display and there was this one piece that had a quote from gandhi in it and lots of people found this piece compelling they'd stop and sort of stare at it and take it in and reflect on it but not everybody found it that compelling somewhere in the course of the art show somebody attached a handwritten note to the piece and on the note they had written reality check He's in hell. Gandhi's in hell?
0: He is? And someone knows this for sure? Well, uh, let's see. Uh, Gandhi was a practicing Hindu, and he never repented of his idolatry and false religion and went to the grave um, denying Christ and refusing to be forgiven by Jesus. So I I don't think that's much of a stretch there, Rob. Uh, What do you think?
6: And, And felt the need to let the rest of us know? Will only a few select people make it to heaven? And
0: well, you know that's a great question. Will only a few select people? Notice this—the the language that will only a few select people. It's not like Jesus Christ didn't die for the sins of the world; he did. Um, but you know what's funny is, is that the apostles actually asked this question of Jesus. And uh, you know, I think it'd be helpful if we actually took a look at what Jesus said. I mean, if you have your Bible, flip on over to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13. I'm going to start reading in verse 22. I mean, this this whole question was actually asked of Jesus Christ, and let's take a look. Uh, here's what it says. Luke, chapter 13, starting in verse 22. says, He went on his way—this is Jesus—went on his way through towns and villages, teaching, journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to Jesus, "'Lord, will those who are saved be few?' Lord, will those who are saved be few? And Jesus said to them, quote, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I, I don't know where you come from. And, and then you will begin to say, well, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I-, I tell you, I I don't know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, and when you see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and the prophets and the kingdom of God, but you yourselves will be cast out and people will come from the east and from the west and from the north and the south reclining at the table in the kingdom of god and behold some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last so i mean I, I, you know someone asked jesus straight up you know will those who are saved be few and uh, based upon the answer that jesus gave um it appears that um the answer would be that the many are going to uh not make it workers of iniquity but i mean you know but then again you know rob bell i mean he's got a new book coming out and he puts hell on trial but i mean don't you think that by putting hell on trial that, that rob bell is in reality putting jesus on trial i mean isn't that really effectively what he's doing but i mean let's let's hear a little bit more here. will billions and
6: billions of people burn forever in hell and if that's the case how do you become one of the few Is it what you believe or what you say or what you do or who you know or something that happens in your heart? Or do you need to be initiated or baptized or take a class or converted or being born again? How does one become one of these
0: few? Apparently the born again thing just got thrown in there with everything else. Hmm. And then there
6: is the question behind the questions. The real question, what is God like? Because millions... And millions of people were taught that the primary message, the center of the gospel of Jesus, is that God is going to send you to hell
0: unless you believe in Jesus. And- no, actually, that's not the central message of Christianity. The central message of Christianity is Jesus Christ died for our sins and was raised again for our Justification it's, By the way, this is a, one of those completely non-secular and, and straw man arguments. Christianity does not teach that unless you receive Jesus, you're going to burn in hell. Uh, Christianity instead teaches this, that you are already heading to hell, and God is offering you a pardon. That the reason you go to hell is not because you didn't believe in Jesus, but the reason you go to hell is because you've broken God's law. And that as a result of that, you you have earned God's just damnation. His just judgment against you is that you're guilty and you've earned hell. But the good news is, is that God suffered in your place in Jesus Christ. More on that in the sermon review, but uh, apparently rob bell here he's you know he's going to put hell on trial, so what gets subtly sort of caught and taught is that Jesus rescues
6: you from God, but what kind of God is that that we would
0: need to be rescued from this so apparently he's putting the God of the Bible on trial, yeah, you know um let's let's you know let's spend a little bit of time in the biblical text because i mean he, here's the deal I mean. You've got really one of two choices at this point. There's really one of two choices. Either Jesus was telling you the truth, okay, or God sent Rob Bell to correct the errant teachings of Jesus. Those are your two choices at this point. Because believe me when I tell you, that's really what's going on here. Jesus was the one who most clearly taught about hell. If you have your Bible, flip on over to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. We read, okay? All right, let's see here. Um where do I want to go? Okay, um yeah. I'm I'm just checking out my notes here. Okay, Matthew chapter 13 starting at verse 24. Matthew 13 starting at verse 24. We read. Jesus put another parable before them saying, the Kingdom of Heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat, and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also, and the servants of the master of the house came to him and said, "Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How does it have how does it have weeds?" He said to them. An enemy has done this. So the servant said to them, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, 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 lest you gather the weeds, you you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So the uh, disciples heard this parable and just went what (laughs) uh jesus you gotta explain that to us so zoom ahead just a couple of verses to matthew chapter 13 verse 36 same chapter verse 36 it says then he jesus left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples came to him saying explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field so he answered all right the one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will, be, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man, that's Jesus, will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth." Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So according to Jesus, um, pretty simple. I mean, he starts off speaking in kind of symbolic language, and then Jesus is asked to explain it, what he said, and he turns around and he deciphers the symbols and tell us what its plain meaning is. So so the question then comes up, I mean, mean, Rob Bell. I mean, here's Rob Bell 2,000 years later, and apparently Rob Bell knows better regarding the afterlife and hell than Jesus does. I mean, aren't you glad that God has finally sent Rob Bell? to come and clear up and overturn the errant teachings of Jesus regarding hell and the afterlife and Jesus' errant teaching regarding the fact that few are saved and that narrow is the road that leads to the narrow is the path that leads to life and broad is the road that leads to eternal damnation and destruction I mean, I I'm I I mean, I for one, I'm so thankful. I'm just absolutely thrilled that God has finally sent us a prophet, uh, the prophet known as Rob Bell, to come and overturn those horrible teachings of Jesus. I mean, whew. I mean, thank you, Lord, that we're finally set free from the, the Yeah, by the way, that's kind of a problem. Um, Jesus, by the way, is God in human flesh. Hmm. And he rose again from the dead after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Hmm. So, um, if Jesus is actually God, then that means that what he was—that his credentials are actually better than the credentials of Rob Bell. Hmm. So, so who am I going to believe? Am I going to believe Jesus, or am I going to believe R- Rob Bell, who's kind of the Johnny Come Lately? Come to think of it. I mean one of them is a prophet. I mean obviously one of them is sent by God. And if if Rob Bell is the one that was sent by God then it's clear that he was sent by God to overturn the teachings of Jesus yet Jesus is God in human flesh so that doesn't make any sense. Maybe I should listen a little bit more to this video. God, how could that
6: God ever be good? How could that God ever be trusted? And how could that ever be good news? This is why lots of people want nothing to do with the Christian faith. They see it as an endless list of absurdities and inconsistencies, and they say, why would I ever want to be a part of that?
0: See, what we believe about heaven... By the way, this is all going to be answered in our sermon review today. You've got to to stay tuned for this. But
6: hell is incredibly important because it exposes what we believe about who God is. And what God is like.
0: Oh, okay. So what we believe about hell exposes what we believe about God and what God is like. Well, okay. I mean that being the case, I mean let's take a look again at you know some of the things that Jesus taught regarding the subject. If you have your Bibles, flip on over to Matthew chapter 25. Let me spend a little bit more time in the text. Um Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. Here's what it says, and when the Son of Man, that's Jesus, comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say, now, by the way, the judgment's already taken place by this point. If you're, you're you know, if you're in the, you know, y'all ever seen American Idol? Yeah, you, you, you. What they do is, you know, they get hundred thousand people get whittled down to three hundred, and then those three hundred, you know, sing for their lives, and then what happens is, is that you know they go to they go to Hollywood and they sing and and you know they perform an audition, you know, to for these like coveted spots, you know, on American Idol. There's only twenty four to begin with. And so what ha- they have to whittle 300 down to 24. And so what happens is, is that after they audition, what they do is they they put them in groups. They they'll put one, you know, they'll take a group of tw- you know, 30, 40 of them and put them in one room, and they'll take another group of 30 or 40 of them and put them in another room. And so you got you got four major rooms set up, and in those rooms are are contestants. Well, the reality is, is that the judgment has already taken place. If you're, if you know, based upon which room you're in, you're either going to go on to the next stage or not. Same kind of the same thing that's going on here. So it, here's what it says: Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a sheep as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Apparently, Jesus separates. Okay, and he will place the sheep on his right, the goats on his left, and then the king, that's Jesus, will say to those on the right. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Okay? Sounds like good news. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me, I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, notice that they're declared righteous. Notice the righteous The righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink and see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he, the king, will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into The eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me naked, and you did not clothe me sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, thirsty, a stranger, naked, or sick, or in prison and not minister to you? And he will answer them, saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. Then these will go away into eternal punishment. Punishment that is eternal. But the righteous into eternal life. Okay, so that's Jesus. I mean, these are in the red letters. I mean, you red-letter Christians out there, those are the red letters. And so um, let me back this audio up just a smidge, and let's hear what Rob Bell has to say again. Uh, Be good news. This is why
6: lots of people want nothing to do with the Christian faith. They see it as an endless list of
0: absurdities and inconsistencies. And they say, I'm so glad you're going to free us from all of those absurdities and inconsistencies that Jesus taught. Way to go, Rob. Why would I ever want to be a part of that?
6: See, what we believe about heaven and hell is incredibly important because it exposes what we believe about who God is. And what God is like.
0: Yeah, so there we go. Um yeah, because if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus because in the story that Jesus told of the parable of the sheep and the goats or the story there, uh Jesus is the king and he's God. I wonder what that exposes about his thoughts about himself. Hmm. Yeah, again, so I just I, I just asked the question, just gotta ask the question. Um I mean, based on what Rob is saying here, I mean I've got I've gotta come to the conclusion that Either Jesus is right about the afterlife or that God sent Rob Bell to correct the errors that Jesus taught regarding the afterlife. Those are pretty much our only two uh, options here. Hmm. Look forward to seeing the book, though. I'm sure it'll be rather interesting. But those are, I mean, so, I mean, where do you sit on this? Um, Are you going to go with Jesus or are you going to go with Rob Bell? you know i'll tell you what I, I i i'll go with rob bell as soon as he dies and rises again as soon as he rises from the grave and thereby proves that he has the authority to overturn the teachings of jesus that the you know what jesus taught regarding the afterlife therefore proving that he was sent by god to overturn jesus's errors regarding what jesus taught about the afterlife as soon as rob bell raises from the dead and does that then i'll go with his his story about what happens in the afterlife, wow, okay, moving along here um I've got no music for this, but I thought I would share this with you anyway uh like I've told you in the past um re- uh, there was a recently concluded conference uh, the, uh big tent christianity part d and uh, I, I did not attend that one. It was all the way over there in Arizona, and I, I there had good reasons as to why I didn't attend. Some of it budget, some of it time. But, uh, you know, I budget for particular con- a certain amount of conferences every year, and I just did not put that one in the budget. But anyway, um, uh, Marcus Borg was one of the featured speakers there at the uh, Big Tent Christianity Conference. And, and, I, and I want you to hear... What he said regarding the Bible and the nature of God, and 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 apparently he knows better than Jesus and the God of the Bible what God is like. But you know, here, here's Marcus Borg.
3: They'll so almost be like bullets on an outline, or points on an outline. If a bullet is too violent, a to metaphor. <laughs> uh, first one, I'm going to talk about some of this tonight, and I don't want to shoot my wad right now. Okay, second one. Uh, I think it's important for us to realize that 48% of American Protestants, and maybe you said this before I came in, I was about 10 minutes late getting here, 48% of American Protestants believe that the earth is less than 10,000 years old.
0: Now notice the way he said that, apparently this is a problem. Hmm
3: and that's not because of the failure of our educational system. Oh,
0: what's the reason why 48% of American Protestants think that, you know, believe in a young earth? Why would that be? Hmm. Could it be, be well, because evolution there isn't I mean seriously, there isn't a single shred of evidence to support macroevolution? Not I mean more and more scientists are defecting from it. It doesn't seem to explain nothing. Um and you know, and Jesus Himself, being God in human flesh, actually, well, He believed in the creation story and believed in Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and all of that. And yeah, uh, you know, could it possibly have anything to do with the fact that God in human flesh actually believed the Genesis story and He proved His uh, credentials were like beyond believable because of the fact that He was raised again on the third day after He was crucified under Pontius Pilate? I just, you know, I wonder if that could. Be, you know, But no, apparently this is a problem. And here's the reason why, according to Marcus Borg, so many Protestants actually believe this. Are you ready?
3: It's because they belong to churches that teach this. And part of being part of that community is to be against evolution and to be in favor of biblical inerrancy and so forth. Really important for us to realize that half of American Protestants believe that. One of the reasons for that is that the United States has the least educated clergy of any country in the developed
0: world. There you go. Yeah, so um, yeah, see if, if we would just educate our clergy. <laughs> yeah, so the reason <laughs> the reason why there's so many pastors who believe the Bible, is because the plain and simple, they're just simply uneducated. Apparently, they only have three teeth. They're all a bunch of rednecks, and uh, you know they're dumber than rocks. Now that's right. We like our pastors to be, you know, just a little bit smarter than a rock. J- not much smarter, but just slightly above the intelligence level of of an amoeba. <sighs>
3: and I'm not talking about mainstream clergy now. I'm talking about those largely independent Protestant congregations, maybe even denominations, that have no educational requirement for ordination.
0: Yeah, see, yeah, that's the problem. Bunch of dumb, dumb, uneducated pastors. See, and if we would just educate our pastors, we would all learn the truth about God, the the real truth about God, the way Marcus Borg did. Let's listen a little bit more about what Marcus Borg thinks about the Bible and God.
3: That's the first comment. Second comment, What's the Bible? God, it's really important for us to be able to say, you know, the Bible is sometimes wrong. If you can't say that, then, you know, you get into arguments about, uh, the Bible says slavery is okay, so what's happened that it's not okay anymore?
0: Oh, boy. That is an old tired red herring and straw man.
3: And the Bible says homosexuality is wrong, and that settles it. The Bible is sometimes wrong.
0: Apparently it's it's always wrong when the current thought in vogue is contrary to what the Bible teaches, and at that point that's when the Bible's wrong.
3: Okay. Next bullet comment. Um Positively, the Bible is a human product. Now that may not sound like a positive statement to you, but it manifestly is.
0: Now, what's really funny is is that this is a liberal argument. And if you properly understand biblical inspiration, then you understand this: that just like Jesus was both God and man, okay? and that you know that there was a communication of the attributes in such a way that you couldn't tear that apart um same thing with god's word okay all scripture is god breathed okay and, or as peter said that you know nobody you know when it comes to these prophecies it's not a result of human interpretation or mythologies but instead is it a matter of what god has revealed okay that's rosebro's paraphrase but the idea then is this and if you if, for instance i I spend time in the uh, in the New Testament translating from the Greek into English, and what I find over and over and over again is is that if you gave me a passage that let 's say i wasn't i didn 't really know it so well that I would be able to immediately pinpoint oh that 's first Corinthians or whatever. I could figure out who the author was based upon the, uh, the sentence structure and the style of writing. Luke has a very unique style. Paul has a unique style that you can't possibly miss. Peter, whoa, yeah, um, that's some interesting Greek there. And then uh, like the Gospel of Mark or the Book of Revelation. <laughs> wow. Yeah, the Book of Revelation. I mean, th- that's a good—by b- the way, th- funny enough, if you're, first, if you're a first-year Greek student or you're learning Greek— um, you might find that your teacher will have you, when it comes to finally reading and translating passages, will take you to the book of Revelation. The reason why is because um, that Greek, yeah, it's, it's really sloppy but super easy to translate. So as a result of it, you know, it's clear that each of the, the human fingerprints are all over the, uh, the biblical text. It's, it's not biblical inerrancy and inspiration doesn't teach the Bible fell out of the sky or that uh, or that it's merely a divine product no it, it, it instead the bible is a 100% human product and it's a 100% divinely inspired product okay the two go hand in hand and so each human being was inspired by god to write the things that he wrote and it was not it was not uh, taking dictation down, it was instead its inspiration being carried along, being moved by the Spirit to write the things that they write. And so you you know it it's one hundred percent human and it's one hundred percent divine. And to say that is not to diminish the text at all, but because of the fact that it's inspired by God, yeah, it's uh, it's it's inerrant. God doesn't lie. God, the Holy Spirit, does not deceive, and you can't tell the truth by telling lies. But you know, this this is just Marcus Borg opining in himself. By the way, we're gonna find out a little bit more about the God he believes in in just a second. Hey, let's continue.
3: And it's not that its purpose is to give answers, not even to raise questions. So I love the way you spin that.
0: You know what's funny, the express purpose of the scripture given in scripture uh, you, you you find it like it you know in, in the Gospel of John these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God and that by believing you will have life in His name. Uh, really the the scriptures are to make us wise unto salvation. Its ultimate purpose its tell us is specifically for men's salvation. But I don't think he's going to say that.
3: Okay. Um, the Bible is the product of two ancient communities the jewish bible the old testament the product of ancient israel the new testament the product of the early christian movement and it tells us how our spiritual ancestors in those communities saw things Uh, tells us about their experiences of the sacred how they thought about the sacred it contains not just Information
0: about what they believe,
3: but it includes, to say the obvious, their prayers, their hymns, their poetry, all of this great, great stuff.
0: Oh, I'm so glad that you think it's great, great stuff. wonder what you learned while reading it, because we're going to find out more about His God in a second, and if you think it's even remotely close to the God revealed in the Bible, you know, let's just keep listening.
3: And to be a Christian means... To take the Bible very seriously. Oh yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. You take it. Yeah, we do. Oh yeah, you. We take it seriously. Not sure what seriously means. Yeah. Um. You don't believe it's the Word of God. You don't believe it's inspired or inerrant. You don't believe the claims regarding the God that's revealed in those scriptures is true because He actually has His own deity that is not at all. The deity revealed in Scripture, but you'll find that out in just a second. Let's. But he oh, he takes the Bible very uh, seriously. Yes, serious, yes yes, 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 serious, but not seriously enough.
3: A continuing conversation with it, but not to get hung up. on Oh, because it's the Word of God. That means we're supposed to believe it, no matter whether it makes sense or not. I mean, John three sixteen does not say God so loved the world that God sent a book. Yeah.
0: Now, that, that's a classic liberal throwaway line. John 3.16 says, God doesn't say God so loved the world that he sent a book. Now, here's the funny thing. Um, um, Tell me, what book do you go to? What's the only book that you can go to to find out about the son that the father sent so that the world would be saved? I mean, if 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 the that particular book didn't say, "For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life." Notice, he just he, he doesn't want to get to that part. He just wants to say, "See, it doesn't say that God's you know God so loved the world that He sent a book." But the problem is, is that you the only where you find the only place you find out about that God and that Son who died for the sins of the world, the one that you can have life by believing in His name. The only place you can find out about that God is in that book, because it's not revealed anywhere else. Jesus didn't write anything down. In fact, Jesus specifically said of his followers that if they reject you, they reject me. And if they reject me, they reject the one who sent me. And the only place that we can find out about Jesus is through the followers that he handpicked and then sent into the world that tell the story as eyewitnesses to what Jesus said, taught, did, and accomplished. You can't go anywhere else to find that information, except for that, hmm, book.
1: Yeah, uh,
3: and so the Bible is a human witness... That our spiritual ancestors declared to be sacred that 's what the whole process of canonization
0: is about, oh okay, so you know, our spiritual ancestors let 's see if you have anything in common with your spiritual ancestors. By the way, then you know the funny thing about ancestors, okay over the uh, Thanksgiving holiday last year in twenty ten, I visited my uncle Bobby i yeah I have an uncle Bobby, and my uncle Bobby, he lives in Connecticut and i haven't seen my uncle bobby in years actually decades i hadn't seen him since i was you know maybe like 12 or 13 years old but anyway um so i was at his house for thanksgiving and we were catching up and uh in his home he has taken the time to actually gather information about our families You know, line, if you would, you know, our family tree. And he has even gone to the point of interviewing old relatives getting copies of very important photographs, making copies of those photographs, and many of those photographs are hanging on his wall. And so Uncle Bobby, he took me to his wall, and he said, this is your great-grandpa so-and-so, this is your great-grandma this and that, and I don't remember their names at the top of my head. Unfortunately, I didn't take notes, but you get what I'm saying. And what I found very interesting was is that looking back through time, looking at those old photographs of my ancestors, I can go, oh that's who gave me my nose. Oh, that's where my chin came from. And oh, look, that person has the same kind of eyebrows that I have. And I found that in looking at the photographs of my ancient and dead ancestors, I could see a family resemblance. Why? Well, because genetics is a rather interesting thing. Now, if you would, if Marcus Borg, who takes the Bible very seriously, by the way, very, very seriously, yes, very seriously, um, is claiming that the people in the Bible, or who wrote the Bible, are his spiritual ancestors, don't you think that the religion and that he believes in, that, that the God that he confesses, well, would, I mean, that, you know, ancestrally speaking, that it would, you know, it would pretty much be the same religion, and his confession would be their confession. I mean, what's the whole point of having ancestors if you don't look anything like them, sound anything like them, or anything like them at all? Let's listen in as Marcus Borg continues talking about his spiritual ancestors, and let's hear about this God that he believes in.
3: Now, uh, last comment I'll make in my series of bullet comments. I may have gone on too long already. But let me go to the question of personal relationship with God. I have a personal relationship with
0: God. Oh, he does. He has a personal relationship with God. Tell me more about this deity that you believe in.
3: I, as a person, am very intentional about centering myself ever more deeply in God or the sacred.
0: Oh, so he's very intentional about centering himself. I don't know what that means. I mean, as a verb, how do you center yourself? And what if you have, like, a really awkward center of gravity? I mean, would the centering have to be somewhere to the left or the right or maybe forward a little bit? You know, like me, because, you know, I have, well, I have a gut. You know, my center is a little off. Is what I'm basically saying. But anyway, he's he, he takes his he takes the Bible very seriously, and he's you know he and he claims that the people who you know, wrote the Bible are his spiritual ancestors, and he has a personal relationship with God, and he centers himself in the sacred, in the divine. Tell me more about this God that you have a personal relationship with.
3: But
0: that doesn't mean God is a person. What? <laughs> uh, back up the tape here. Hold on a second here. Let's uh, let's hear that in context.
3: ...more deeply in God for the sacred. But that doesn't mean God is a person. You know, people sometimes confuse personal relationship with God with, do you think God is a big person?
0: <laughs> so the God he believes in isn't a person. Do you think that's a problem? I mean, apparently his God isn't a person. What is his God? Is it the force? Is it some kind of... Cosmic pantheistic, pan, you know, panentheistic thing that just permeates, you know, and oozes in and out of creation. Is that his God? I mean, is that the God of the Bible? Hmm. Well, if, you know, which kind of then leads to the, the bigger issue. Jesus Christ claimed to be the God of the Jews in the flesh. And he displayed all of the attributes of personhood. And he not only that he had he seemed to have personal relation a uh, personal relationship with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. I mean he talked with them, he prayed to them, he communicated with people. maybe Jesus only seemed like a person you know you're familiar with the uh docetic uh docetistic uh heresy that Jesus only seemed like he was in the flesh, apparently. Even though Jesus was God in human flesh, he only seemed like he was a person or that he was personal he wasn't he, he wasn't really that, but he just seemed like it. huh
3: you know separate from the universe, who created the universe separate from God's self in the beginning and who relates to the universe now, by deciding sometimes to do things and other times deciding not to do things you know. If if somebody thinks of God that way, and it doesn't get in the way of their relationship with God, and it doesn't get in the way of their growth and compassion, I have no need to correct their theology.
0: Yeah, but you don't personally believe in a personal God. Okay.
3: But I think thinking of God that way, as a person-like being, who sometimes intervenes and so forth... I think it's the major cause, well, if not the major cause, one of the three major causes of modern atheism.
0: Oh, I see. Yeah, the reason why people are atheists is because Christians believe that God is a personal being. Yeah, no. (laughs) Sorry, you got the cart before the horse there, buddy. Um, Yeah, the reason why there are atheists is because people are by nature sinners and at war with God. And, uh, again, you know, Jesus Christ is God in human flesh, and he really actually displayed all the attributes of personhood, um, that he was a person. In fact, uh, we, we can pray to Jesus. Um yeah, so where did you get these ideas about God, Marcus? I mean, you you claim that you take the Bible seriously, but everything that's revealed about the personal God that's revealed there in the scriptures you reject. So how did, how is it that you say you take it seriously, or you think of it as sacred? Hmm. Hmm. And hmm again the question is who are you going to believe? I mean apparently you can either believe Jesus who claimed to be God and proved it by raising himself from the dead on the 3rd day after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate or you can believe uh Marcus Borg whom apparently God sent to correct us to, you know and so that we wouldn't believe that God is personal because Jesus was uh everybody misunderstood Jesus and Jesus he appeared way too personal and as a result of it people confused God as being a personal being Wow. That's just really, really, really bad. All right, we're up on our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, that you can do so. My email address talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask me my friend on Facebook. It's Facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Great sermon coming up. You don't want to miss it. I'm gonna floss my brain. Maybe sing a little more Carly Simon. It's something.
3: We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
1: This is the air I breathe
5: This is the air I breathe I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, for photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio.
0: right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Need a good sermon, and boy, when I tell you, this one is blisteringly great. This is the perfect antidote to the stuff that you heard from Rob Bell and Marcus Borg today. In fact, it's the exact opposite of what those guys talk about. And it's firmly grounded in the biblical text. Let's uh, cue up our sermon review music here. And the uh, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Concordia University Irvine. With the Reverend Doctor Rod Rosenblatt presiding. The name of the sermon. Christianity in five verses, Christianity in five verses, and I'm telling you, this sermon is the remedy for all the goofiness, all the silliness, all the disrespect, all the blasphemy that you heard from Rob Bell, that you heard from Marcus Borg, and even the me-centered stuff that you heard from, uh, you know, which we talked about regarding uh, Stephen Furtick and his speech at Saddleback Church. I'm telling you, this hits all of those guys right between the eyes. And it's not really trying to go after them. It's just a faithful proclamation of what Christianity and what the Christian message really is. Anyway, I've said enough. Let me uh, stop this, and without any further ado, here is Dr. Rod Rosenblatt, Christianity in Five Verses.
4: In the name of Jesus, amen. I begin with a true story, a story of something of which I was a part as a pastor here in Orange County. I was serving as an interim pastor at a non-LCMS Lutheran parish out on El Toro Road years ago. An interim pastor is a temp, called to hold things together as best he can while the congregation goes through what has become the overly long process of issuing a call to a pastor. It's a holding things together with bailing wire and bubble gum. One Sunday, we were talking in the adult class about the call to every Christian to witness to others about the gospel, to tell the story. Before people left that Sunday morning, I gave them an assignment for the following Sunday. The setup I gave them was this. Imagine a situation where a close friend or friends asked you what Christianity was, what it was about. I specified for them conditions that were as good as it gets. A close friendship with him or them over many, many years. Kids who played together each week. A situation where it was normal to phone one another every week about this, that, and the other thing. Maybe you vacationed together as families every summer. Your friends saw you as honest, intelligent, of goodwill, and so forth. He or they respected you in every way and without reservation. He or they, as Luther said, always put the best construction on everything that you do. So... The assignment was to take a piece of paper and write down the answer to their question, What is Christianity? Then bring that paper back with you next Sunday. Got it? The following Sunday, I was looking at 50 bright Lutheran Christians who had attempted to set the basics down on paper and realized they couldn't do it. 50 or so blank pages. Now, what I want to do with you in just a few Short Minutes is something so basic, so fundamental, that it's almost embarrassing to say the words. And even those words are not mine, really. I stole them. From whom? From C.S. Lewis, in his essay, The Weight of Glory. His subject was that God delights in us whom he put into Christ. It was he, as an Englishman, remember, you don't embarrass anybody, who said that he blushed to even say the words, but he was going to defend that proposition anyway. God delights in his children adopted in Jesus. What I want to do this morning, embarrassingly, blushingly simple as it sounds, is walk us all through the basic Christian message in five verses. I picked five verses from my acquaintance with the Navigators, and, to a certain extent, from confirmation memorization. But the same thing could be done with a different half-dozen verses, as well as these, and another half-dozen different verses after that. How? Well, if you have what's called a study Bible, go to the ones I'm going to use, and use your study Bible. It, would, it will supply you parallel verses everywhere in the Bible, Using a study Bible this way is a skill much worth having if you've never done it before. Or use your doctrine textbook. Doctors Mueller and Moss chose verses even better than our standard three-volume dogmatics by Franz Pieper. Why do this, anyway? Well, we've all got to have some kind of organization or map telling the story. Plus, religious discussions have a way of wandering all over the map. All too often, we never get through the story because we or our curious friends follow Alice down various and sundry rabbit holes and go completely off the rails. So, what's the subject of each verse, you ask? One, that all children of Adam and Eve, primarily me, you, have sinned. Two, that the penalty for sin is death. Bodily first, then forever in hell. Three, that Jesus Christ paid that penalty we've accrued by his death on the cross for each and every one of us. Four, that justification before God is pure gift as opposed to a matter of our works. And five, the assurance that one really is justified before God now and then forever. Two caveats: this is not mechanical, thinking something like Campus Crusades for Spiritual Laws. There will be men or women with whom you are talking who have so heard the law that you can completely skip the first two sets of verses they're already so crushed, so broken by the law that you doing any more of the law is totally unnecessary. So skip to the verses about skip the verses about the law stuff. Go to Christ, his death, what his death did, what justification is. Why? Because your hearer has already gotten the bad news, but still is in need of you explicating the good news. Know beforehand that you are often going to be asked how you know this gospel is true, not helpful, true. And for that, I recommend our apologetics course here, no matter whether it's from me or from Dr. Moss or from Dr. Francisco. We're all doing the same sort of thing. So, let's look quickly at each of the verses, shall we? First, that we, I first, then only the person to whom I'm talking, are sinners, are are sinful. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible is addressed to rebels who hate their Creator. That's me and you. The classic text is, of course, the story of the fall in Genesis 3. But there are New Testament parallels as well. For example, St. Paul's parallel in the first half of Romans chapter 3. Dark, dark, dark stuff. And it's about you and it's about me. This is, of course, not very popular. As Lewis said in his The Case for Christianity, the Christian story begins with bad news. Jesus said that it is only those who are sick and know it who have the need to go looking for a physician. Those who imagine that they are well and not sick unto death will ignore a physician. And I recommend that when we talk about sin, we use ourselves as illustrations. Lord knows there's plenty of raw material. Not using the sin of those to whom we're talking. Do it autobiographically. Your hearer will connect the dots between us All, you yourself, and himself or herself without your help. So I recommend that we use a lot of I rather than a lot of you when we try to get sin across in a secularized generation. And unfortunately, in our therapeutic culture, you and I probably have to contrast feeling guilty with being genuinely guilty. The Bible message is very concerned with the latter and not very much with the former. I can use the Ten Commandments to illustrate my failure, primarily the first, read Luther's Catechism. um, And again, not his or her uh, failure, mine, in the face of God's law. And I've heard some people do this same thing using Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Our primary problem is not that we feel guilty, at least according to the Scriptures, it's that we are guilty. The key thing is that we get across that we are all already doomed, already face a completely holy and righteous judge, and are presently under his righteous condemnation. And the final will not be graded on the curve. There are only two grades, 100% and zero. And the standard for the judgment is his law. And that law in the Bible checkmates us. Each of us in his or her cell on the Green Mile and the sentence of condemnation already pronounced. The carrying out of the judge's sentence of death is all we can expect. Unless there is some intervener greater than we, someone who is not sick unto death, some rescuer champion greater than we. Two, that the penalty for sin is death, bodily death and forever death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. This sin-death law linkage in the Bible is a matter of the entire race's sin as compared with my personal death, my personal sin. But regardless, it all comes down to the same thing anyway. I am a willing member of a fallen and sinful race, the one we call human. So are you. And so is your hearer, Gentile or Jew, it makes no difference. Rosenblatt has willingly, proudly, happily, and on a daily basis piled up against himself God's altogether righteous wrath, his retributive justice. If I say I just want God at the judgment to give me what I deserve, he will. If I see myself as somehow above needing mercy or grace, if I just want justice or fairness, God will give me exactly what I've said I want. Now, whether or when I get justice, it is to my joy or to my terror is another question. Third, that Christ in his death on the cross paid the penalty I and you too owe. Romans 5.8. But God evidences his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We've already seen that we deserve nothing but execution and condemnation forever, not just for our sins daily, but for the sin we inherited from Adam. And if one doesn't get us, the other will. We fare badly on both counts. But amazingly, that God who is perfectly holy and just once in human time, that is during the days of Caesar Augustus, became one of us, took our place, and later dealt out his justice on himself instead of on us. This is Christianity, folks. Christianity is not about moral improvement, transformation, community, happiness, or any of the rest of that stuff. It's about the offended king giving his life and blood in order to rescue those who hate him. That's you and me. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our sin was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. St. Paul, God made him, that is Jesus, to be sin for us. St. Peter, he himself, Jesus, bore our sins on the tree. God was under no obligation whatever to do any of this, but he did it anyway. If you are going to some claimed Christian church, and this is not the essence, the center of what is communicated to you every single Sunday, my advice to you is get out of there. Switch churches. If this amazing announcement of what God did for you one afternoon 2,000 years ago isn't defining, isn't central, isn't the message 13 ways from Friday... The old Lutheran fathers would probably say it's not really a church you're attending. It's some kind of weekly gathering, but a church it ain't. And I don't care how often the worship leader uses the name of Jesus either. If it isn't clearly about the Jesus who bled, died, reconciled God to you, propitiated God's own wrath for you... Adopted you as his child by the blood of his cross, where God richly and daily forgives your sin on the basis of Jesus' blood and death. The worship leader's Jesus ain't the Jesus of the New Testament. Christianity is not about moral improvement, it's about substitution, the innocent one dying for the guilty ones. Correlatively, Christianity is not primarily about recipes for healthy relationships, better parenting, wiser dating, more intimate marriages, better financial responsibilities, or any of that. By nature, I again and again return to my own perceived needs as a dog returns to its vomit. And so do you, I'll bet. And we need a pastor to placard before our eyes, Jesus is dying, to preach into our earballs Jesus dying for us, the good news of what Jesus' death did. Preach to us what we do not incline to, the depth of our sin, and that somehow the Jesus of the New Testament text is even greater than that sin, and that he freely laid down his life for it, somehow conquered our death for us by dying in our place. Christianity isn't about us. It's about Jesus and his identity and his work for us. Our only part is as beggar recipients of the overspill of who he was and what his cross did for us. It's about Jesus' death somehow putting us right with God. Very simply, Jesus and his substitutionary dying solved my real problem, sin. Regardless of the fact that I imagine my real problems are any of a thousand earthly problems. Scripture says I'm not even capable of knowing or diagnosing what my real problem is. I invent other problems, call them all my real problems. That's why I need Scripture to tell me again and again that my real problem is my hatred of God. But as I said, not just that. I need my pastor to be telling me that Jesus' blood and death have rescued me from the problem I didn't even know was my problem. And that it worked. How do I know that it worked? God, help me not by its making me somehow more moral or somehow better each day, or happier either, or experiencing Jesus, whatever that means. I don't have a clue. I'm to know that the cross actually did what Jesus said it did by the fact that the Father raised him out of the grave three days after you and I, by the way, killed him on that dark Friday afternoon. For that justification, or the more general salvation, is utter gift, does not involve any good works on your part or mine. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, this one you know. For it's by grace that you are saved through faith, and that faith not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. The only righteousness that opens the gate of heaven for sinners is the righteousness that belonged to someone else. Christianity is basically about what the Father was doing for me and for you in the death of his only begotten Son one afternoon. What's our part in this deal? Our part is sin. And when we're talking to someone about grace, we're speaking of what the old fathers called the favor de propter Christum, the favor of God on account of Christ. The law-obeying life he lived for us, but especially about his cross, blood, and death in our stead. Grace is the opposite of earning. The one is pure gift, the other is wages. We saw above that what you and I have earned is death. That's our deserved wages. But not so is the gift of free life. Deliverance by another so that in him we are part of God's gratuitous favor. God found a way to be both just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. The key Bible word here is imputation. Adam's sin was imputed to us, says the Bible. But then what we could never have seen coming, God imputed our sin to his son instead of to us. What Jesus was and did is imputed or reckoned to our accounts by the great judge. And what we are and have done, the judge imputes or reckons to Jesus' account. Our sin, the judge announces, was accounted, reckoned, his instead of ours. Luther calls it the happy exchange. The righteous judge declares those in Christ as if righteous. Bang goes the gavel in the heavenly courtroom. And the judge's voice booms out, I declare you innocent. And I whisper to myself, but I'm guilty as all get out. Still, really, palpably. The judge hears me whispering and he nails it. I am the judge of this courtroom, and my judgments are unassailable by anyone, including you, Rosenblatt. I declared you innocent, and mine is the final law of this land. You are reprieved now and forever. Your sentence is commuted as of now. When I reckon my son's innocence to you and declare you innocent, then I see you as if innocent. We aren't talking about morals here unless you mean the morals of my son, His morals and death are now counting for you, are the basis of my judgment, so there. Christianity is about imputed righteousness. His, Jesus' righteousness, imputed to you and to me, is if ours. Correlatively, Christianity is not about our, our imagined improved morals and sanctification. Again, if you're at a church talking constantly about your improvement, go find another church. One that talks about your failure to improve and about Jesus' real righteousness imputed to you on your account. And who, a pastor who does it now, next week, next month, and forever. Why? Because your church is killing you. Five, the assurance that, this, that we, I, you, are really justified before God. 1 John 5, 12-13. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Can an individual be sure of possession of this great present and future gift imputed to him or her? You bet. And the primary reasons we can know this are one, that it has absolutely nothing to say about us and our moral state, but only about what Scripture says the death of Christ did that afternoon, and two, Because looking to that and only to that as what justifies us before God means that God has himself put a wooden stake through the evil vampire heart of our looking at our supposed virtue as a way of earning our way in. It's admittedly roughly what the Bible means by the word repentance. He has repented you. It's, a 100, it's 100% the righteousness of the Son and 0% any false righteousness of mine. The man or woman driven by God's Spirit to have given up on plan A, that is, I'll get six year better on the final and God will grade it on the curve, and has fled to plan B. God has justified sinners linked to Jesus by simple faith in Jesus' death. Can know that he or she is in, not out. The God who never changes, Malachi 3.6, promises that to you. In Jesus, you're in, not out. Now. And when you face the final judgment. What will you hear at the final judgment? A public recounting all your sins? Nope. God long ago forgot them. And he promises he has. He can't even call, bring them back to his memory. You will hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. I tried to get this across in an address I gave here at Space Mountain that went public a while back. It was called the Gospel for Those Broken by the Church. We'll find ourselves in heaven. We'll probably say something like, you mean it was all that simple? Just Jesus and his cross and his blood? Well, I'll be damned. But of course, that's the point, isn't it? Not one of us God-haters whom God has repented and faith into Jesus' death, blood, and cross, will ever be damned, not a single one, ever. And then, as C.S. Lewis put it, the term is over and the holidays have begun. Forever, the great marriage feast of the Lamb, in the body, and feasting on the finest of meats and the choicest of wines. Welcome, child, welcome. Amen, amen, and amen.